So this is the most popular subject ever, and uh, people love to talk about persecution uh, because it really encourages Christians. <laughs> and yet, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, Jesus made absolutely no secret of this whatsoever. So, what, what's happened here? Uh, you know, do, do we edit this particular piece out? Um, I know uh, there was a, a Dutch group, and they um, produced a Bible, and they called it, I think in, in Dutch, I think they called it the popular Bible. And essentially what they did in the Bible was they cut out all the bits that people didn't like, and then put it all back together again and offered it. And uh, as you can imagine, there was outrage among the Christians, outrage. And they said, how dare, this group should be made illegal, it's blasphemy, whatever. It turned out to be quite a legitimate group. And their point was basically this, well, if you're not going to bother about it, why should we have it in the Bible? And uh, it was a good point well made, really. However, do, do, we just, do we just approach persecution on the basis of, sorry for them, glad it's not us? Which is, you know, to a large extent, true. Or is there a lot to learn? Is there a lot to learn from this? I'll, I'll give you a quick warning, just, just if you're nervous today, okay? I am not going to suggest that we invite persecution on ourselves just to feel like we're doing what Jesus said. Um, I, we are not told to go and stir up trouble in order to be persecuted. Uh, I know there is a, a school of thought that thinks that, but that isn't actually biblical. Instead, what we're going to do today is carry on our theme and look at the New Testament and what happened. So for the early church, persecution was inevitable. It was going to happen. Jesus warned that that would be the reaction. He even told James and John that they would drink of the same cup as him. And indeed, shortly after Stephen's martyrdom, James was indeed killed by Herod. So he did indeed do exactly as Jesus said. So as persecution happens, so the church scatters. In fact, because the church scatters, so the church grows. So the church grows because it's persecuted. And right down to today, there's a direct correlation between persecution and displacement and church growth. Now, I am not going to talk like people of my parents' generation in the uh, extreme evangelical tradition who said, what this church needs is a good dose of persecution. <laughs> um, but then they were the same people who told me that what I needed was a good thrashing, um, and uh, whereas they were clearly wrong with the first, they might have had a point with the second. <laughs> who knows? Anyway, however, however, having said that, experts tell us that persecution doesn't always, it doesn't always result in church growth. So one of the things we've got to do is ask why 
Why, what is the relationship between persecution and church growth? And what is it? What is the element that means it either happens or it doesn't? Because it doesn't always happen. Some governments have decided that they want to wipe out the church in their country and have actually managed to do it. It isn't always. I know we, we think about the church in China, for example, and its exponential growth and the fact that despite all the best efforts of uh, the North Korean government, there is still a church and a body of believers surviving against unbelievable odds. Uh, and the same with the, the, the uh, movement of IS and its, its so-called caliphate through across borders, almost irrespective of borders, and yet a Christian body stays and survives and sees Muslims saved. So there's definitely something about persecution that generates remarkable growth, but it isn't always inevitable. So we're going to have to have a look at this. Now, we know, and we've talked about this a bit, that the early church was thrown up as the perfect church. Um, and it had these things that we like. We like the sound of the seemingly perfect order. Uh, and those who were excited by uh, particular spiritual gifts or miracles, this was also something that happened there as well. So uh, the church was very nice to people. The church was doing amazing and miraculous things, and it was. And yet neither of them was able to prevent the church from being persecuted. So being tremendously nice to each other and tremendously generous in the community seems like a very good thing. And similarly for us as Christians, being able to show uh, not just God's love, but, but the power of the Holy Spirit among ourselves and throughout the community also seems like a tremendously good thing. And I'm not suggesting that it isn't. It is a tremendously good thing, but it will not prevent the church from attracting negative attention. So, what is it about persecution that's inevitable? What is it about persecution that brings about church growth? And most importantly, I reckon, what can we learn about that for our church today? What can we learn about that for our church today? So I thought we might talk about that. So persecution is inevitable. Jesus told us persecution is inevitable. We should be grateful that we are living now in a generation where we are not currently persecuted for our beliefs. We are severely criticized. That's often been the case. But we are not persecuted. Here we are. As far as I am aware, none of you belong to any of the secret services and are spying on me. If you are spying on me for the secret services, I want in your report to point out that today I'm wearing a particularly nice shirt. Just just when you go back to MI5. But that is not the case elsewhere. So what happened? What got Stephen killed? Well, we know that Stephen was a good man. He, he may well have permanently been part of a team that generated peace between Jews and Greeks in the Jerusalem church. He may have done it temporarily with his team. It may have been permanent. But he was a good man. He was well-liked and respected. He was involved in some very important social care work. He was doing good stuff. The other thing was he wasn't causing anybody any trouble. He wasn't causing anybody any trouble. So how come he was killed? The Bible tells us this, that he was full of God's grace 
and that he performed signs and wonders. And what happened because of that is he got noticed. And when he got noticed and challenged, he was wise in the way that he answered, which just served to irritate the people who were challenging him. I mean, you can't win here, can you? We'll ask a really ridiculous question. I'll give you a very sensible answer, and that'll just make you more cross. What, what do you do with that? Well, the thing is, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. His opponents, in the end, eventually charged him with blasphemy and pushed him before the Sanhedrin. Did this get him killed? Well, not really. You see, Stephen appears in court. He explains the whole Jewish heritage and the coming of the Messiah, and he points out to the Sanhedrin that, that they were the people who murdered Jesus, and they murdered Jesus in exactly the same way as previous generations had murdered the prophets that foretold Jesus. Now, okay, that's slightly inflammatory. And it irritated them a lot, as we heard from our reading. It irritated them a lot. But then he said the big thing. He said that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it's this confession of Jesus as God that got him killed. Previously, you're a bunch of murderers not doing any better than the previous generation, possibly would have gotten flogged. But Jesus is God, that got him killed. That got him killed. And here's the thing, in Babylon, when there was a king, and they said, no, he's not God, that nearly got them killed. And today, in many parts of the world, if you say that Jesus is God, it'll get you killed. People react to the gospel of Jesus. Everybody reacts to the gospel of Jesus. Some well, some not so well, but everybody reacts. So all sorts of activities that we do may well get notice, but it is when we mention Jesus that we get a reaction. It's when we mention Jesus that we get a reaction. Jesus says this, On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. On my account. Not on account of you being tremendously nice, brackets, possibly nicer than other people. No. Not on the basis of you looking a bit different or talking a bit different from everybody else and therefore standing out. No. Not on the basis that we believe in a range uh, of miraculous signs that other people struggle with and indeed pray and witness them. No. None of those things. But on my account, says Jesus. As soon as Jesus comes into the equation, it's Jesus that gets the reaction, not the works, not the signs. Jesus. Okay, so was persecution inevitable? Well, no, because Stephen could have just failed to mention Jesus. Would that have saved him? I don't know. But eventually, it would have saved the church. If the church had said, okay, we've learned our lesson, we'll just shut up now, then it would. And the churches that do that in areas of persecution are the churches that don't 
grow. The churches that grow do. So here's the question. What is it that brings about persecution? Sorry, what is it about persecution that brings about growth or not? So let's look at Jesus' instruction to his disciples. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the disciples? We did this a while back. Mark did a, a little skit about it, if I remember. But Jesus sent out his disciples and said, look, I'm sending you out. And they were to go out and spread the good news. That's what they were to do. Do you remember this? Who remembers this? One person, two people in the whole church remembers this. Okay. So, Jesus sends them out, and he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, is what he says. But this is his instructions. Don't take any supplies, or any spare clothes, or any food. Meet with people who welcome you. Spread the word. Heal, cast out demons. Don't bother with people who don't welcome you. That's my problem. That's what he says. Now, that's quite challenging stuff. I know people who have to go home two hours into a journey because they've forgotten a packet of tissues and have to go back and fetch them. I, I, I don't know if you know people who have to, who think, have I forgotten, have I forgotten, have I forgotten? Does that happen to you? No, clearly not. Okay. Let alone go out with nothing and see what comes. But here's the important thing for the disciples. They go out and they don't have anything to lose. They haven't got anything, so they don't have anything to lose. They've got no food, they've got no money, got no clothes, they're not worth robbing, they've got nothing to lose, and they only have one thing to offer, and that's the good news of Jesus. That's the only thing they've got to offer. All I've got is Jesus. Take it or leave it. The people who take it, they do that. The people who don't, they move on. But that's all they've got, is just that. Here's the thing. When we think that we have something to protect, that's when we become cautious and defensive and anxious and afraid. When we think we have something to protect, that's when we become cautious. That's when we become defensive that's when we become anxious. That's when we become afraid. Proverbs tells us that the more wealth someone has, the more anxious they become. For wealth, actually, read anything else that we feel we need to protect, whether it's how people see us, whether it's whether or not we keep our job, whether it's a whole range of other options. What is it that we protect? What is it that we are afraid of losing? In the persecuted church, speaking about the gospel can get you killed. In the Western church, all it will get you is a dirty look or an awkward silence. Now, whereas death is not enough to halt the gospel in the persecuted church, in the West, slight unpopularity can silence it in the whole community. But if all you have is the gospel, you don't have anything 
else to offer, and you don't have anything to lose. And therefore, that's what you've got. And we know that that's not our property. Nobody can steal the gospel from us. Nobody can pull away our beliefs from us. So let's talk about that just for a second. If that's all you've got, and you're excited by it, that's what you'll talk about. What do you talk about when people come around your house? What do you get excited about? Come and see my new kitchen. I have just read this amazing book. If you are unfortunate enough to visit our house, then I will talk excitedly until you want to go home about clocks. <laughs> Those of you who've been to my house know that I will do this. I, I'm sorry for it, but it excites me. And anybody who comes, cops it. Look at this. Look at this new cheese I've bought. Try some, try some, it's fab. Whatever it happens to be. Come and see my new guitar. Come and see my new bass. Mike would get excited about a new bass. He gets very excited, he gets very excited about old basses, let alone new ones, so he gets very excited. Okay, are we that excited to tell people about Jesus? Well, the question is, is that because we're just not as excited about Jesus? Am I not as excited about Jesus as I am about an old clock that doesn't work? Okay, that's a really unfair question for you to ask me. And, uh, I think, and I think you need to ask that question of yourself and leave me alone right now. But it's a good question and it's a challenge because I do get excited about those things and I rant on about them. Um, and, and to be honest, I don't pay, uh, this is the truth, I don't pay much attention to whether you're interested or glazing over. <laughs> Listen to my wife, she's telling the truth. But why not with Jesus? Is he not exciting enough? Is he not life-changing enough? Is he not interesting enough? Oh, people wouldn't want to hear about that. I know that. They don't want to hear about my clocks either, but I tell them. Because <laughs> I'm excited. It's interesting, isn't it, about this? If that's all we've got, that's what we share. And if we haven't got anything else that we are trying to protect, we stop being so anxious about having to lose it, potentially. Do you understand what I'm saying? So why does the persecuted church grow and other church persecuted churches don't? Well, it's here, it's simple. The church that continues to share Jesus grows. They apply the Jesus principle, which is only to share to those who are welcoming of the gospel. They're not foolhardy. So the persecuted church learns those survival skills, and it's careful about who to share and who not, but to not share is not an option. And they are careful and they apply the person of peace principle, which is if somebody's welcoming, 
continue to share. If somebody's not welcoming, back off and move on to somebody else. If somebody is not open, we don't go, well, that was my one decade evangelism. See you again in 2025 when I will try someone else. It's just you move on and you do when you do. Now, this is the part that makes the church grow, is the church spreads the gospel. However, just so you so you, I understand as best I can, people who put their head down and disappear because it is hard. If we fear that we will suffer or lose out, then we become defensive because we are afraid. What I don't know is this, because it's never been put to the test. I don't know how well I would stand up to that kind of pressure. I do not know. I know what I'd like to think, but I am not going to stand here and say that I would. I know how afraid I get of things that don't really matter. How afraid would I get of things that do? I don't know. I'm certainly not going to judge anyone who just ducks and runs because it's scary. However, we do know this, that trying to be popular doesn't grow the kingdom of God. So there are many churches, and indeed other organizations, which desperately try to give society what its current tastes demand. Those churches don't last. There are many churches which cater for the consumer tastes of Christians. Similarly, they come and they go. One mega church leader um, that I had the privilege of dealing with who'd moved on, and he talked about his church as being very, very full, all of established Christians, and he described his church as a mile wide and an inch deep, where those who were in charge were employed to deliver what it was that people expected, and if they didn't, then they moved on to another one and another one and another one. That church shrank and then grew, not in numbers, but in spiritual growth and then in converts, as they realized that their job is not to cater to people's tastes, but to be faithful to the gospel. That's exciting, isn't it? So, why does the persecuted church grow? Well, the persecuted church grows in a, for exactly the same reason as this church would grow or any other church would grow. The secret to church growth is nothing to do with persecution. The secret to church growth is this, that we speak out the gospel of Jesus, and we speak it out because we are enthused and excited and it matters. We speak it out because it's more important than other things and if protecting other things means denying Jesus, we're not prepared to do it. And then the church grows. Now, does persecution give the church the shake that it needs to make it do that? Probably. Okay. So, do we invite persecution from the world? No. Do we invite God to let us be persecuted because we've got our heads down and our mouths shut? There's an interesting question. Who knows? Maybe we do need a good dose of persecution. <laughs> Who knows? 
But it's not necessary if we're prepared to speak out. There we go. Anyway, what can we learn as a church today? Well, I'm sure you've already figured some of that out already. The early church was so excited and joyful about Jesus that they shared him everywhere. They met together a lot. They were joyful and they were grateful and they praised God. Joyful and grateful. Those are the challenges for the Christian in the modern world, where we are supposed to be discontent and feel that others have what we want. Joyful and grateful is not encouraged. You know why joyful and grateful isn't encouraged, don't you? Because then you're not going to buy anything. And let's face it, our consumer world doesn't want people who are not going to buy anything. Yeah. What's on your list at the moment that you think I really ought to get, really need to get, really want to get? Great. You're playing the game. Well done. Right, so, and they learned from the apostles' teaching. They learned from the apostles' teaching. They were excited, and the Bible was precious. In the persecuted church, two pages of the Bible is something that people treasure. In the Western church, the Bible can sit on a Christian shelf for weeks gathering dust. The Bible is precious, but we only realize it when we don't have. They prayed together. They broke bread together. And as John pointed out, breaking bread was eating together and having meals together and not just communion. And they spread the gospel in their communities. Now, some people like one of those. Some people like none of those. Some people like most of those. But most people struggle with the last one, which is that they spread the gospel in their communities. Some ignore those and they talk about biblical correctness. Some ignore those and talk about the social issues that need addressing. Some ignore those and talk about signs and wonders and miracles. But none of those are why church grows. The church grows because of the gospel. So let's ask ourselves some questions. One question, does it matter to us that the church grows? Now, I know that sounds like a rhetorical question because obviously it's a bit like Sunday school where you have to say Jesus because if you don't, everybody goes, oh. right. But I'm not saying it like that. I'm asking you genuinely to think about this. Does it actually matter to you if the church grows or not? Does it bother you if it doesn't? Because that's an important question. Because we've got to ask what we're like. Are we, do, do we really want this? And then if we're saying, are we prepared to do enough to see it happen? And the questions that come with that are, what are we afraid of? Honestly, what are we afraid of? I think we have to be a church where people are allowed to say, do you know what? If I tell my brother-in-law this, or if I say anything at all, this is what happens. And to be honest, it just keeps my mouth shut because it intimidates me. Why should it not be okay to say that? If I say anything at work, this is what will happen. Why is it not okay to say that? 
What we have to ask ourselves, however, is this. If Jesus' principle was that we go places where the gospel is not welcome, we move on until we find a person of peace who will hear it. And the question is, well, I accept that. Your, your brother-in-law will not take that. I'm only choosing this randomly, by the way. Uh, your workplace will not accept that. So what are you doing to find a place that will? I'm not saying give up your job or abandon your brother-in-law. I'm saying, you know, where, where is the place? It's not like, well, I've gone down the list of everybody I know and I've ticked them all off. Therefore, I can't say anything. It's no. When we're sent out, we move on beyond that. Do you understand? But we have to, it has to be okay to be afraid and to talk about it. It's got to be okay. I'm rolling on a bit much, so I won't do We also have to recognize what's of real value. What is of real value? Is it clocks or Jesus? Do we actually get excited about the gospel? Do we? That's the thing. And from where, from where does our joy come? But these are the things that make us a church growth. I just want to say one more thing, um, which is about signs and wonders, because they get talked about a lot in the Old Testament church, in the New Testament church. I just want to say this one thing. Signs and wonders follow the gospel. So let's look at the sequence. Signs and wonders follow the gospel. They follow the gospel. In other words, if you speak out the gospel, then you are much more likely to see signs and wonders. If you don't speak out the gospel, then it is unlikely that you will be part of that, which gives you three choices. One, go somewhere else and be a spectator while somebody else performs. Number two is invite somebody here to perform. Or number three, start speaking out the gospel. Now, I appreciate number three is the least popular of these options, but how it works. I want to give you a little bit of personal testimony, but I don't want to go on about it too much. It works like this. I'm not a big fan of show, show and tell signs. So, I pray for people to be healed. Sometimes they are. I pray for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they are. I pray for people to prophesy. I pray for people to be given the gift of tongues. And sometimes they are. Including several times this year. And this year is not long in. Okay, we didn't do it at the front for everybody to see. I'm not a fan of that, but other people are. But here's the thing. The other thing that I do, and it's my job, is I tell people about Jesus. Is there a relationship between the two? And the answer is this. Do you want to see those signs and wonders in your life? Do you want to see them enough to tell people about Jesus? Because the signs and wonders follow the gospel. See the sequence the gospel, then the signs and wonders. Do I believe that today is a day when we could see all manner of miracles? Yes, I do. Do I believe that today is a day when we could see people healed, demons rebuked, uh, prophecy, uh, people filled the holes? Absolutely, absolutely and without doubt. How do we see that? We become a body that has the gospel on our lips. That's, that's how we see that. We don't get somebody who's big and special. 
We don't go somewhere where somebody is big and special. And I'm not saying these people are not big and special. My goodness, I admire a lot of them. But if you don't want to be a spectacular Christian, then you have to have the gospel on your lips. So you hear what I say? And with that, I will close. The good news